Thank you, Belinda. Good morning, LifePoint. How are you all today? Wonderful. Now, I understand there is a Cowboys game that is kicking off at noon, so uh, I plan to preach until three. So um, you should, if you have the phone apps to set your DVR, you might want to go ahead and do that now. So here we go. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm just going to preach for an hour, so it'll be good. Um, here's the thing. Uh, I, I, we, it's been a while since we've met together, and so I just want to kind of, you know, say a few things because I get to preach and I have the microphone, and what are they going to do, right? I mean, so I've, I kind of got you as a captive audience. So here's, here's the thing. I want to, I wanna, like, just kind of welcome myself, then I'm going to say some things. I'm going to preach a mini-sermon, then I'm going to preach the real sermon. So we're just going to do a lot here this morning, but, but sit tight. I've made it entertaining. Uh, there's in-flight entertainment for your viewing pleasure here. So here we go. Uh, number one, let me just do this. Uh, it's been a while since we've met. It was August 3rd, in fact, since, uh, or somewhere the first week in August since the last time I was here, and, and a lot's changed. Number one, last time I was here, I was on crutches, as you remember, uh, and I was, I was in the, like, chair thing like this. And so I just want to let you know God's healing still works and my knee is bending and, uh, you know, it's the, the ACL terror is, is healed and, and we're, we're moving on from that. So thank you all for your continued prayers for those who prayed. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, it is November, and so what good men do in November is we start No Shave November, right? So if you notice all these bearded people out here, you know, there's guys at Frisco, we're all doing that, we're, we're growing the beards out, so uh, this is happening, just embrace it, just let it wash over you, just the smell of manliness that comes from our beards, so that's, that's happening. Uh, the third thing is this, uh, since the last time we met together, uh, I didn't, but my wife had a, a, another kid, and so we're in it, we went from a one kid to a two kid family, right, and so we're pretty excited about that. Uh, for many of you who uh, have, you know, multiple kids, you know it's kind of like this. Uh, our, doy, our, our joy is doubled, um, but our sleep is cut in half. Uh, and so that's been our world. So uh, many of you know that, but we are, we are really excited uh, about bringing uh, our son into the world. We're super excited uh, about that. So sorry, no pictures yet. We're, we're kind of uh, private on the picture things, but at some point, if you see me around campus, I will introduce you to my son. Uh, whose name is James, but we call him Jimmy Doug because I'm from East Texas, and that's how we roll. Uh, so there you go. All right. Uh, okay, here's what I want to do. I want us to, to first uh, just do this one little exercise here. Thursday was Veterans Day, and we have a number of veterans in our midst. So if you served in any branch of our military, could, would you mind standing so we can just thank you for your service? We got him here. Okay, one. Okay, there we go. Thanks so much. All right. Here's the deal, vets and church. Um, America, the United States of America, is our mission field, okay? And it's the people group that if you live here, God's called you to reach. And what our veterans do, our men and women who serve, they, they, they serve so that they can provide not only freedom, but they can secure our mission field here so that we can do ministry in a distraction-free way. So vets, just once again, thank you for your service uh, to our mission field here uh, and uh, before God in that. So, so there's the little just kind of thing I want to do. I want to preach a mini-sermon here. If you'll look in your bulletins, you'll notice there's a giving card that's in there. This is a little strip. If you'll take note of that. While you're doing that, I'm going to draw on the whiteboard here. <clears throat> Here's the thing. You may be asking yourself at this point, we've been in this uh, capital campaign for about a year. We're coming up on a year of that. Uh, and you may be asking yourself the question, especially as we talk about money in this way, hey, 
what's the deal with Christians? Do they just need more money all the time? Is that what happens when you become a Christian? You just begin to start asking for money? I mean, after all, you might be thinking this organization has a $2 million operating annual budget, right? And they just uh, took in pledges of, of about $2 million that's on top of that. And we take an offering each week, like what, what's the deal with, with LifePoint asking for money all the time and churches asking for money all the time? And here's, here's why I ask those questions. I ask those questions because I, I pretty much presume that many of you are asking those questions at some point. And the reason I presume that is because guess what? As a church staff, we're asking those questions. We're very aware that those are floating around. We think them. It, we, it concerns us as we think through this process. But here's what I want you to understand. We are not asking money, or we're not asking you guys, uh, asking for money or asking you guys to give because we need your money in a sense, okay? God has all the money we need. Uh, you know, he can give us money as he needs it. Uh, here's where we're coming from, and I want to make sure we understand we frame this appropriately, okay? Really, when it comes to giving, especially giving in the American church, there's this tension between these two things when we're on the board here. Uh, I'll just kind of do it like this. There's a tension between lifestyle, if you can't see the whiteboard, look on the screen up here, lifestyle, and giving, okay? And in the United States of America, particularly in Collin County, if you're left to your own natural devices, here's what's probably going to happen, because there is this tension. You're probably going to privilege lifestyle, and you're going to, you're, you're, by prioritizing lifestyle, your lifestyle is going to restrict your giving, okay? This is typically how we operate, okay? Figure out what kind of lifestyle you want. You hear this from an early age. Figure out what kind of lifestyle you want. Get the job that affords you that lifestyle so you can afford the house and the car and the type of lifestyle for your family or yourself. You can send your kids to college. Uh, you can buy the things you want, the boat, the whatever you need, the clothes, etc. right? And then with whatever's left over, you might prayerfully give out of that. And there are pastors at times who say that, hey, if you got anything left over, get out, give out of that. Well, the other way to live is to say this when it comes to this tension here. Okay? You say, hey, you know what? I'm going to prioritize giving, and I'm going to let giving restrict my lifestyle. I want, I want giving, in particular, giving to kingdom causes, to the things that Jesus wants to fuel for ministry. I'm going to let that be the priority, and I'm going to let all of my giving restrict my lifestyle. And just as a spoiler, this is what motivates us to call LifePoint to give. This is what challenges us individually as a church member. This is what challenges me and my wife to step up our giving during campaign. Because Jesus says, the Bible says, this is the, the relationship, the, the, the letting giving be your priority, letting it restrict lifestyle. That's what's actually going to produce the, the abundant life of overflowing joy and lasting satisfaction in the life of a believer. This is what we're all about. There's just so much joy and amazing, wonderful, Jesus-centered, exalting, worshipful uh, activity in this right here. And that's what we want people to be about. But, but here's the thing. Their intention. And, and if you don't have any kind of uh, way to deal with that, you're, you're going to probably be someone who says, I'm more likely to give or to put priority on lifestyle and restrict my giving. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and prove that to you this. Here's the thing. This is the thing that drives us in giving. It's the thing that drives me in giving. And this is true reality. We're just going to take a show of hands here. And, you know, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to get you or anything like that. I'm just going to prove that there's this tension here. And I'm just going to make a, an observation. So just show of hands, how many of you in the last calendar year ate too much? At any given meal, you just said, hey, at, at a particular meal, at some point, I ate too much. Show of hands. Yep, that's me too. I go to CC's. I'm like, I'm all in. 20 plates. Let's go. Right? 
I want 20 plates of pizza. That's how I roll CCs, right? Okay, so you've eaten too much, right? You've just admitted this is, this is you. It's a lifestyle overindulgence, okay? How many of you on any given moment, any given purchase, any given shopping trip, you, have, you can say, in my experience, I have spent too much money in the last year? My hand's up too, right? See, this is, not, this is not for girls, right? This is not just for women. Women aren't the only ones who go like, oh, I'm just gonna go to Target, look around, and then they come back with a new you know, dining room table, right? It's not just, see, men do this all the time. They're like, hey, I'm gonna go to Academy. I need some tennis balls. And they drive back in a Jeep. And the wife is like, why do you have that Jeep? You're like, well, how's I gonna get the kayak around, right? The guys do this all the time, right? You just spend too much money. Here's the thing, here's the thing. I often hear my friends say it, that they regret eating too much, that they have regrets about spending too much money. But I've never heard anybody say, I regret giving too much. Think about that. I often hear people, and you hear people say too, they regret eating too much, they regret spending too much, they regret how lavish their lifestyle is. I've never heard anybody say, I regret giving too much. At no point have I ever heard somebody who's just given a lot of money so that we can do missions in Haiti say this, well, you know what, I gave that $1,000 check to the, the Haiti mission, and I know that it helped this small, impoverished child move out of institutional poverty and get into a school and have access to education and clothing, and now they're in a, a healthy, functioning, pro-social member of society. Man, I've just, this, that transformation's been amazing, but I regret giving that. Is there a way to go back in time, get in a time machine, so I can get that $1,000 check back and put that kid back into institutional poverty? Because I regret giving that much. Right? Have you ever heard anybody make such an outlandish claim? No. I never hear people say, I regret giving. I hear people say all the time, I regret spending too much on my lifestyle. And so here's the thing, life point. We don't want you to live lives of regret. In fact, we just had that sermon series two sermons ago or two series ago. We want you to live lives of no regret that at the end of your life, you can say, I gave it all appropriately for the kingdom of God, that Jesus would be glorified and I would be satisfied in him. And that lifestyle, that abundant lifestyle that Jesus promises to us, it happens when we prioritize giving and we restrict our lifestyle out of that. Now that's good in theory, but we've got to give you guys some practical application for that. And that's why we have this capital campaign, and that's why we have this insert in your bulletin. There are four ways you can participate in giving. You may say, what's the first step? I think the first step is just prayerfully saying, Lord, how can I give more that it restricts my lifestyle? How can I undercut just the sin of materialism and greed in my life by giving more to fund the kingdom? Maybe that looks like you giving to someone who's not associated with LifePoint. That's okay, because that's, that's what we're talking about here, okay? You wanna support a missionary, you wanna support something that's not directly associated with LifePoint, you've got a friend who's a missionary or a compassionate international child, that's great. But at some point, here's what I know to be true. You're gonna give a dollar more to fund God's kingdom, and he's gonna say, that was awesome. Give two more. And you're going to give two more. And he's going to say, give a thousand more. And you're going to give a thousand more. And he's going to give, say, give 5,000 more. And you're going to just keep increasing your giving. It's going to restrict your lifestyle and you are going to love it. So we want to give you some practical ways to jump on board with that. Thus, the bulletin insert in the capital campaign. So the end of this sermon here is, hey, prayerfully consider how you might work on the discipline of giving so that you can undercut the, the regret of this overspending lifestyle so that your relationship with Jesus can be as amazing uh, as it possibly can be. So, 
end of sermon, ready for the altar call, right? Okay. You guys are like, wow, we won't get the Cowboys kickoff. That's in 30 minutes. No, no, no. There's another sermon coming right now. So let's just transition into that. And here's how I want us to transition into the next sermon, the real sermon here. I want us to pray. And in particular, not just for this sermon series, but I want, to, I want us to join in prayer uh, for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ and the other people who are affected by the bombings in Paris. And so if you just join with me, I, I just want to just send a prayer out to Jesus for that. Jesus, we're starting this new series on the Jesus-centered life. It's, it's, our desire is to just make sure that you are at the center of all we do, that you're transforming every area of our lives. Uh, and Jesus, what I uh, pray that you would do in that is mold us into the kind of people who, who think beyond our walls, who think with kingdom mindset, and who really have a heart for the nations. And speaking of nations, Lord, I, th- I think about France, and I think about the city of Paris. And Lord, evil men have done some evil things, but Jesus, we know that you are sovereign, and that in Romans 8.28, you say that you bring good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. So Lord, bring good out of that evil situation, bring healing, and Lord, I pray that you alone get the glory uh, out of the, the restoration and reconciliation that happens in Paris and in France and all over the globe. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you have Bibles or you have phone apps, you can open them to the book of Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to get going there. Colossians chapter 1. Additionally, it's printed in your bulletin if you want to take a look there. While you're opening, let me go ahead and erase this, give us a clean slate. All right. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and here's what he says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Life point, I want you to notice three things in this passage here that are going to form the basis for our sermon this morning. The first thing is actually kind of two things, but they're complementary pieces here. It's this, that believers are called to teach truth, and that believers are also called to warn people about truth. That the, the, the two, two sides of a coin to a believer's life are teaching truth and warning people about truth. And if you think about this, this makes sense because uh, whenever you're dealing with issues of truth, uh, you're dealing with issues of the consequence of truth. And so if something is true, something is a truth statement, and you listen to it and you align your life around it, you're going to experience these good consequences associated with truth. However, if you reject truth, you now are going to experience the consequences of rejecting truth, the bad consequences. The good consequences are happiness and satisfaction uh, in being aligned with truth. The negative consequences of rejecting truth are that you're living this life of misery and regret, uh, and you're somewhere lost in darkness, right? And so what Paul is just simply saying is this, hey, as believers in Christ, we should be the kind of people who proclaim truth. But If people don't want to listen to it, it's really loving of you. It's really okay. It's really important for you to make sure that you warn them of the consequences of not following truth. When I was uh, 
a sophomore in college at Baylor University, I was a business major. And I was a business major because I wanted to be a pastor, but I wanted to get a good foundation in business principles before I went into being a pastor. Because so much of what we do, probably 50 to 70% of my job is, is administrative. It's thinking strategy and marketing and organizational behavior and all these things. So I just needed a good foundation for that. So I did business and you, as a business major, you have to take accounting classes. So I remember I took my first accounting class with Miss Abby, a legend at Baylor University. And she comes in the first day, she, it's, it's, it's like, she's like this legend, right? So when she walks in, everyone was talking, it's like, ah. she comes in, she sets her stuff down, she's very refined, just a very regal lady. And she goes, class is very simple. I'm gonna tell you what you need to know for this class. And if you listen to me and do what I tell you to do, you will make 100. However, if you don't listen to me and what I tell you to do, you will fail my class. I expect at the end of the semester, there'll be two categories of people, people who listened to me and made 100, and people who didn't listen to me, and they failed, right? And so I am, from that get-go, I'm like, oh, I gotta listen to whatever she says. Whatever she says is gospel. So she's going through the principles of financial accounting. I'm taking notes, and you know, I just do what she tells me to do. And at the end of the semester, guess what? I make 100. And I go up, and I you know, turn my final thing. She's like, hey, you made 100. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Now, I have friends who are like, eh, she's bluffing. Yeah, what does she know, right? They're like, I'd rather play video games or do whatever. And so, and my friends, guess what? They failed the class. Well, what was Miss Abby doing right there? Well, she, here's what she was doing. She was saying, this is a true statement. This is how accounting works. These are the principles. If you align around them, you'll make 100. If you reject them, you're gonna fail my class. There's really no in between. And that's, that's, the, that's the system we're dealing with when we're dealing with truth. If something is truth, we are as believers who love our friends to tell them, this is truth, here are the consequences of following it. You're gonna want those consequences. But if you choose to reject this, here's the warning, you are gonna suffer negative consequences. And Paul's saying this is what believers are to be about. Now, specifically, Paul has a specific truth in mind. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, if you're one of those bulletin filler outer people, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you uh, what that specific truth is, because you can fill it out on your bulletin. It's number two. The truth is that Paul's referring to is that Christ lives in believers. The truth is that Christ lives in believers. Now, this is a profound truth. Let me just tell you. This is pretty weighty. And so, if it's okay, I want to spend the next 10 minutes going deep into philosophy, okay? So for those of you who like philosophy, you like to read philosophy, you like to think philosophically, you like to go to coffee shops and order expensive coffee and sit around for hours and hours and debate things needlessly, you know, if you're one of those people, you're gonna love this. If you're not, I'm gonna try to make this entertaining so you can get through it, because I think, really, it merits consideration. Is this question here, what does it mean for Jesus to live in our hearts? When Paul says, this mystery is profound, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, what does he mean? When, when evangelical Christians say, hey, have you prayed and asked Jesus in your heart, what, what does that statement even mean? I remember the first time I heard that, I was thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is going to live in my heart? Like, is this laparoscopic? Like, how does this work, right? Like, is there a surgery involved here? They mean the, or like, I was just really confused. I think it's a confusing thing. So I just wanna, I just wanna walk through this, okay? And in your bulletin, we're just gonna walk through it like this. In your bulletin, you can fill out these blanks here. Here's what I think is true about this. We're beginning now, I'll set my watch. We got 10 minutes to go through philosophy before I bore you and lose you. Here we go. Uh, here it is. Number one, we basically, I think, we basically all understand the idea of holding someone in our heart. I think we all get this idea. 
Number two, I think most of us have dead people or deceased people in mind in our hearts. When we think about holding someone in our hearts, we're thinking about holding a deceased person in our hearts. And you can just fill out the next one here. Number three, holding dead people in our hearts brings about few changes or brings about fixed changes in a limited number of areas of our life. Let me, let me unpack all of that. I'm gonna use the whiteboard for that, okay? So I think we all basically understand what it means to have someone in our heart. So if you can think about the human being, philosophically speaking, the heart is the center of the human being, okay? It's the innermost part of any human. And housed within the heart is this thing called the will. The will is basically that entity which, which, which is your want to, right? When someone comes to you and say, hey, what do you want to do tonight? And you're like, eh, I don't know. Like, where do you want to go? You want to go to McDonald's? I don't want to. By saying, I don't want to go to McDonald's, you're, that you're basically exercising your will, and your will lives within your heart, okay, at the core of your being. So this is important. When we say, I'm, I hold somebody in my heart, we, we are basically saying that we hold somebody right here, okay? We're not talking about the organ. We're just talking about this invisible quality of a human being. And nowhere is this more prevalent than if you're at a funeral service. Uh, my wife and I were recently at a funeral service. Her mom passed away, and we, we heard someone say this. They got up and said, listen, you know, Nancy is, is, is gone. She passed away, but her memory will live on forever in our hearts. Right. If you've ever been in a funeral service, someone says that. Hey, her memory, his memory will live on forever in our hearts, Right. And so here's what we're saying. This, this deceased person, the memory of this deceased person, it now is taking up residence in our heart, probably right up next to our will. Now, why is that important here? Why is it important? Well, because I think that's what we mean. We have these tangible memories of all these experiences we've had with loved ones who've passed on, and we can think about specific conversations, we can recall them to mind, about how they shaped our lives. Our, our, our deceased loved ones have this incredible shaping influence on us. I mean, you guys get that, right? Like, you can think about grandparents or parents or people who've passed on. They have these incredible shaping influence on us. And really what we're, what we're articulating when we say that is, I have these, these conversations with this person, and man, when I remember them, I remember how much they've shaped my very want to. There are things I don't want to do anymore because this person I had a conversation with one time, they, they impacted me and it shaped my character, it shaped my heart, it shaped who I am internally. And so that's what I mean with the following blanks here. If we could just kind of draw some blanks and I put like a, okay, we think about a dead person, okay? When we think about how that person has shaped or changed our life, we can say, hey, a deceased person has changed me in fixed number of ways, meaning there are very particular conversations we have or have had in the past which have impacted me. And the, the area of my life that that changes, it's a, it's a fairly limited uh, area that they've changed my life. And we'll just say this, in terms of a frame of reference that I have for that, that person that I hold in my heart, it is all in the past. Okay, someone who has passed on in the past had a conversation with me in a particular area and provided some change. This is the very philosophical way we talk about that. 
But what we're not saying is that person continues to speak into our life in the present, talking about things we never talked about in the past. So just for example, let's take my, my Mima, for example. Okay, my Mima died a few years back. And I, I have incredible memories of conversations with my Mima. This is my dad's mom. Okay, my Mima was built like a linebacker, right? She had like you know, five kids all under the age of one. I don't know how that happened. This is how she tells the story. And man, I mean, she was just this really tough, awesome, cool lady, right? So when I have conversations or when I think about my Mima, whose memory lives in my heart, right? I can remember my Mima talking to me about how you act in the car. You put your seatbelt on, you don't talk, you don't yell, you're very polite. I can remember my Mima teaching me the value of hard work. One time she had me wash her car and she's like, you need to keep your things clean. I obviously did not hear that one, so God sent me a wife who helps me do that, right? Okay, he was like, yeah, this isn't working. But I remember these conversations I had with my Mima. But here's the thing, if I were today to go, wow, let's look at the 2016 presidential field. Uh, Mima, what do you think about this? Mima doesn't speak into my present reality. She informs or shapes my past. She's informed a few areas of my life uh, in a way in the past, but she doesn't have any present shaping reality in my life. Do we get this? We got this? Okay. Not if you get this, right? This is what it means to have someone in your heart, a deceased person whose past interactions with you have shaped you in a fixed way in a limited number of areas in your life. And it has impacted you in the past. But here's the important question, okay? If you get one thing, I want you to get this. Just lean in. This is the game-changing question. It's the question I think Paul's pressing us on. What happens when we have an alive person in our heart? What happens, we don't have a dead person in our heart, we have an alive person in our heart. And what happens if that alive person is the empowered, resurrected son of God who is himself God? What happens when he's in our heart? Because that's what Paul is talking about here. The mystery that we're dealing with here is Christ inside of you, inside of your heart, bumping up right next to your will. This is not a deceased person's memory. This is the alive, empowered Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm going to write this so we can understand. Alive Jesus. Okay? So here's what we can, and I'll just kind of compare this to a deceased person. Okay? Here we go. Alive Jesus. Okay? And here's where things are different when we have an alive Jesus in our heart. Number one, the type of change that we can experience with Jesus, it's not fixed. This is like unlimited, continuous. Is that right? Continuous. Okay, you guys can you know, spell check me, just text me, right? Continuous change. What, what about the areas of our life? What does alive Jesus being in our heart do to, in terms of shaping the areas of our life? Well, he shapes all of them. It's not a limited number of areas. It's all of our hearts, right? And, and what's the framework we have in terms of Jesus is shaping reality? It's not the past. Alive Jesus shapes us in the present and into the future. So you know what? I can remember when Jesus told me about something in my past. I can also talk to Jesus today and say, what do you think about the 2016 election? Should I vote? If I should vote, which I, how should I vote? Which candidate should I want? You know, Jesus can inform that moving forward. Why? Because he's not dead. He's alive. 
And so when you have an alive person who's living inside of your heart, bumping up against your will and forming your will, you're talking about a dynamic, transformative process that's happening every second of every day of your life from now until you die and you go to be with Jesus. And now he's not in your heart anymore. He's in, he's in reality in heaven with you. This is a, this is a dynamic, transforming process here. But there's the truth. That's the truth about alive Jesus. It's a radical shift. Here's the warning, okay? And the warning's this. There is in American culture and in Western culture this idea that's very pervasive. It's floating out there. And it says this. When you ask Jesus into your heart, you don't ask alive Jesus into your heart. You ask dead Jesus into your heart. Now stay with me here. Okay, some of you are like, dead Jesus? What do you mean by that? So here's how this line of reasoning goes. Jesus was a good man and a moral teacher who lived as a historical figure. And at some point, he died on a cross. And the only resurrection that he had was a, a resurrection of his memory that lives on in the hearts of his believers. That's dead Jesus. It's the Jesus, the moral teacher, and nothing more. He's not God. There's nothing transformative about him. He's just some dead, wise teacher. And so uh, when you ask Jesus in your heart, you're really taking a, a dead person, a memory of dead Jesus, and you're putting him into his heart. And guess what? Dead Jesus operates the same way as any other deceased person you know. The change he provides in your life is fixed. The areas that he impacts are limited, and almost all of your testimony about his frame of reference happens in the past, right? Let me just, let me just kind of tease this out a couple of different ways, right? If I'm talking to someone about their marriage, and one of the persons there uh, is a uh, person who asked, asked dead Jesus in their heart versus someone with a live Jesus, here are the different answers. I go, hey, how has Jesus impacted your marriage? And they go, um, well, uh, I know that the Bible says that Jesus says you're supposed to love people, and um, uh, I know that uh, if you're dating, right, you should get married as opposed to just stringing the person along. That's just kind of dumb behavior, right? Okay. And I know that uh, you know, the Bible spells out the qualities that someone should be when you get married. And so I guess that informed my decision, right? What's that language? That's all past language. Your testimony of Jesus' impact on your marriage is all in the past. And it might be very possible if that's your testimony, you didn't ask alive Jesus in your heart, you asked dead Jesus in your heart. Someone who's asked alive Jesus in your heart, when I ask the same question, tell me about how Jesus is impacting your marriage, they say something like this, man, I don't know if you know this, but being married to another human being is hard, right? It's difficult because uh, I'm selfish and they're selfish and they have the nerve to not just give in to my demands all the time. Like it's crazy, right? Who thought of such a, a, an arrangement? Jesus did. And so Jesus called me into this marriage and I'm in here and I'm being married to this person. But here's the deal. Here's the great thing. Every day I'm frustrated with myself for being selfish or I'm frustrated with my spouse for not just giving in to my demands. Jesus brings me peace and a vision for how I can love my spouse unconditionally and serve their needs and not just consider my own needs, but serve them. He not only gives me the vision, he empowers me to execute on this. And man, it has transformed my marriage. Now listen to that language of someone who says that. That is present tense, transformative power in all areas of your life in a continuous way. That's the testimony of someone who has alive Jesus 
in their hearts. I'll give you another example just because I think it, it, it bears merit. Uh, there are times when um, uh, parents will come to life point, they'll drop kids off for the first time. You, this may be you here, so if this is you and I'm stepping on your toes, it's not because I, I, I hate you, it's because I love you and I just want to be honest about this. So just let's all just be cool, right? Okay, if, if you get upset with me, you can, you know, come punch me afterwards. It'll be fine, we'll be good, right? So parents will show up and they'll drop kids off and we'll be walking with them in the hallway and we'll say, hey, uh, you know, glad you're here first time. Tell me, you know, what brought you to Life Point? What are you looking for? And we're looking for things like, I'm looking for good preaching. I'm looking for good worship music. We're looking for life groups. Some of those questions. But occasionally, young parents will drop their kids off and they'll come in and we'll say, hey, what are you looking for in Life Point? And they say, well, we just thought, you know, we want our kids to be moral. And so we just thought taking them to church was a good idea. So we just kind of dropped them off in LPK, just hoping they would get moral. And, you know, we're now coming to the worship you know, service. And I will generally, because I'm kind of a, you know, a rascal, I will say things back to them in this conversation very kindly, but I'll just go, oh, okay, cool. So that's your aim. Well, man, I'm sorry. I just don't think we're going to be able to make your kids moral here. And generally these parents are like, what? Like, yeah. They're like, wait, are you going to make my kids immoral? I don't think we're going to make them any more immoral than they are now. I just don't think we're going to be able to help them become moral. I mean, like putting your kids at church and hoping they'll become moral is kind of like, you know, hanging out with a bunch of millionaires and hoping to save money, right? I mean, that just, osmosis has, is really poor for, you know, being a conduit to transfer over character development, right? I just don't think we're going to be able to make your kids moral here. I really don't. But here's my promise to you, and I'll say this, and this is where it gets dicey. I go, here's my promise to you. I think if you'll partner with us, we will empower your kids with a resurrected Christ who lives in their lives. They'll be empowered for Christian ministry. And typically at this point, this is where those parents give me this look. Oh, okay. You're one of those churches, right? Okay, the Holy Roller, Go Jesus churches. Okay, right? And they'll be like, oh, one of those churches. And I will typically respond, yes, we are one of those churches. We are for sure one of those churches. And you should know, there are no other kinds of churches, right? Because there's only one Jesus, he's alive, and his job is to transform you in your heart, inside out. And if you're bringing your kids here, we're going to expose them to that Jesus, and he's going to empower them, and he's going to transform their lives. They're going to come home, parents, and they're going to say, Daddy, here's my memory verse I learned today. And they're going to say it, and you're going to realize, my kid now knows more about the Bible than I do, right? That's what you can expect in LPK. Why? Because we are a church from kids to adults who organizes around the resurrected, empowered, hope-filling, satisfying, all-powerful Jesus of history and of the Bible, who is the same one. We are not people who are just trying to make adults moral. Blech. What a horrible aim in life. You know, what I, you know what a bunch of moral people are at the end of their lives? They're unsatisfied because they're working so hard to try to earn their salvation and you can't earn your salvation. You can't be good enough because if you do one thing wrong, you get to heaven, you're like, God, you should let me in. Look at me, I did everything great. You did one thing wrong, you're out. Oh man, right? That's the end, I'm just warning you. That's what's gonna happen. You have to have a better appeal than I tried to do a good job because everyone's trying to do a good job and not everybody gets into heaven. The appeal you gotta make is I leaned it all on the alive Jesus and he's the one who gets me into heaven. And God goes, I love Jesus, you can come in. So life point, here's where I'm going with all this. Where I'm going with all this is, which Jesus do you have in your heart? You might have, you might answer this three, one of three ways. Number one, I don't have Jesus in my heart. Never thought about that. Would you please think about that? Number two, I have 
alive Jesus in my heart. Great. Praise the Lord. Pray for those who don't have Jesus in their heart. Or the third way is this. I think I have dead Jesus in my heart. And the answer to you is the same. You need to pray and ask alive Jesus to come into your heart. Now, we're going to get to that. But let me answer this third point here because I know some of you like to fill in blanks. And it's this. Here's the thing. When we hold a live and a live person in our hearts like Jesus, we should expect a dynamic change in an unlimited number of areas. And number three, the result of this Christ in us is maturity. So that's what happens when continuous change takes place in your heart in all areas of your life. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. He has access to everything. That, that the result of that transformation is called maturity. It's when what Jesus wants for your life and what you want for your life, it's now the same thing. It's maturity. Maturity occurs as Christ dynamically changes every area of our lives. Here's how I want to conclude. I want to conclude today by talking about this. I think it would be really great today if you are someone who's here today and you don't have Jesus, the alive Jesus in your heart, to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. And let me just tell a story which maybe brings this all together because I, I would suspect that here, if you've gone to church or you have been in Collin County or you've been around conservative people most of your life, you can kind of think, oh, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not really sure. I've been hanging out with Christians and I think maybe I'm a Christian or at some point you told someone you were a Christian and now you can't possibly tell them you were wrong at that point. Let me just cut through all this. I'm gonna tell you this story and then we're gonna wrap up. Uh, I, I had this really shaping story that happened to me when I was 17. I got saved. I grew up in a non-Christian family, very agnostic, atheist, and I got saved into this very conservative Southern Baptist church, like very formal and, you know, basically everything I'm not to this day, except theologically, which I think they were on point with. But nonetheless, you know, it's like lots of older people who like, you know, piano hymns and, you know, the, the pastor who would dab the head and kind of slide across stage, right, when he was making a point, that whole kind of thing. And at the end of the Southern Baptist Church, if you've never been to one, typically they have an altar call, which is where, you know, the music minister gets up and the, the pianist starts playing just as I am. And the pastor stands at the front and says, okay, if you want to make a decision to receive Christ or if you'd like to join our church, come forward. We'll counsel you in the kind of anxious bench right over here and we'll kind of wrap everything up. And so they start playing one, two, three, four verses while the pastor stands ends up here singing, right, waiting for people to walk down the aisle. It's this, this amazing thing that happens. And so I, when I was 16, I walked that aisle, and I prayed to receive Christ, and now I'm 17. I'm in this church, and the music minister's up, and he's, you know, singing the thing. It's just, you know, one of those Sundays. Now, let me stop there and just kind of fill you in. The music minister, Jerry, is married to this lady named Judy. Judy was my piano teacher when I was really young, before I was ever a Christian. Judy had been married to Jerry for a long time. She'd been in ministry 30 years at this point. They're in their 50s. And she'd been the piano player, and he was the music minister. And they'd, they'd been this traveling duo going to church, 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 right? And Judy's kids, Judy and Jerry's kids, their daughters, both married pastors, right? So if there's anybody in the church that has an invested interest in keeping up appearances of being a Christian, it's Judy, right? So this moment happens, and I'm sitting right there, and Jerry's up there singing, and they're playing a song, and the pastor gets up after like two or three verses, right? You know, we're all like, cowboys are kicking off now. Could you wrap this thing up? I know you got souls to save, but, you know, I'm 17. I want to go home, watch you know, TV, whatever teenagers do. And the pastor gets up, and this is, this is like such a part of Southern Baptist life. It's going to make me laugh. Maybe, it, you know, I don't know if it makes you laugh, but the pastor gets up, and he does this thing. He's like, 
we're gonna sing one more song. He's got this tremolo voice, like a ghoul takes over his body, right? I don't know why people talk like that, but it's like, and he's like doing this thing with the crowd. There's someone here who needs to get saved, right? And that thing, and then he goes and he sits down, and I'm like, what was that about, right? Like, I, just, I don't under, I have no categories for interpreting this. And so I'm just like, okay, so Jerry starts singing, and Judy's playing, and all of a sudden Judy stops. And I'm like, oh, what happened to Judy? And she gets up and Jerry awkwardly like looks over and then just like huh, uh, keeps on singing, right? By himself now. And Judy walks to the pastor and starts praying together. And every eye in this congregation, the church space about the size, we're all looking like, what is going on over here at the anxious bench? Like what's happening? The pastor gets up and he walks up with like a decision card. Afterwards, you know, Jerry sits down and he goes, hey church, I just wanna let you know, you know, Judy just got saved. And there's this audible gasp, like, oh, what? Like, what happened? And Judy just like comes up like it's a hip hop awards ceremony, right? She grabs the microphone, you know, she's like, listen, right? She starts walking around doing this thing, or at least in my mind, that's what she's doing. And she's like, here's what happened, right? I got saved when I was really young, but I don't think it really mean anything. I think I asked dead Jesus into my heart and I hoped it made me a moral person. And she said, I went to a Christian school and I went to a Christian college and I married a minister and we jumped into ministry and I'm doing all the things in ministry. I give birth to these kids who go into ministry and we're doing all this ministry. And I'm sitting here today and I realize I have never asked a live Jesus into my heart and I cannot fake it anymore. He's like, so I prayed to receive Christ. And everyone's like, awesome, that's great. Now let me, let me tell you something as a 17-year-old who knows very little about Christianity who's sitting there. Let me tell you what's not going through my mind as a 17-year-old. What's not going through my mind as a 17-year-old is, well, how could she fake it all those years? She's been lying to us this whole time. All this music ministry is a sham, right? At no point am I getting up and protesting that church, right? None of that's happening. I'm not thinking, oh, man, that was just real. I can't believe she, Why didn't she do that privately? You know, why? I'm not thinking any negative thought about Miss Judy. Here's what I'm thinking. Believing in Jesus must be of the utmost importance. For a 50-year-old woman on the stage, the music minister's wife, to risk social shame to ensure that she is getting it right when it comes to Jesus. Because this means heaven and this means hell. This means a life of satisfaction. This is a life of frustration and pain. This is a life of overflowing joy and abundance. This is a life of works-based yuck. And Judy couldn't take it anymore. And so I looked upon her and I thought, well done. This is important. I need to make sure people understand this important decision and make the right decision. So life point, I want to invite you today. If you have not believed in a live Jesus, and maybe for a while you've been rolling with dead Jesus, maybe you've never believed in Jesus, maybe today is the day you want to do that. And if you've never prayed that, here's how a prayer like this goes, and I'll just kind of pray and tell you, and then we'll maybe pray together here, but it's like this. Based on Romans 10, 9, Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that you're a sinner in need of someone more than yourself, and if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he's the alive Jesus, Paul says, then you will be saved. So maybe you want to pray something like this. Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and in need of a Savior. And I'm asking a live Jesus who's resurrected from the dead to come and live in my heart and change my life, transform me into maturity. Amen. Maybe where you're at, you want to pray that prayer. Or maybe when Mike and the band get up here in a little bit, you want to pray that prayer. Or maybe you just prayed that prayer right there. If at some point 
Today, you pray that prayer. I would encourage you, just like Judy did, to get in contact with someone like me. And you can do that in three ways. Number one, you can fill out on your connection card, write a letter A, circle it, or you can just fill out a comment. You can put it in the offering basket that's gonna come by in just a bit. Secondly, you can come meet me and the staff back there in the connection room uh, and talk to us. We'd love to pray with you, help you walk through that, help you understand things. If you have questions, we'd love to spend as much time as we need to to help you work through that. Or three, you can email me. Yes, we live in an age of email, but some people like to do that in the convenience of your home, so I'm just gonna put my email address right here, okay? It's Hankins. make that dot a little bigger, at lifepointplano.org. Maybe you wanna email me later. I'd love to chat with you about that and follow up. And here's the commitment I'll make. You pray to receive Christ today, tomorrow, next week, next month, whatever. Someone from our staff is gonna contact you and I'm gonna try to wanna go have coffee with you. Why? Because this decision is of the utmost importance. And I wanna make sure that you are walking with Christ and everything he has promised you to have uh, in himself. Let's pray together. And we'll pray and then the offering baskets will come by here in just a little bit. Jesus, uh, I thank you that you are the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe and that you have promised us this abundant life that we, when we drink from you, we never thirst again. And I pray for uh, those of us here today who may be struggling with this idea of believing in the right Jesus or the wrong Jesus, the alive Jesus or the dead Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would lead uh, curious people here today to believe in the alive Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would transform our congregation individually, continuously in every area of their lives as individuals, and then move that transformation congregationally, that you transform every area of our congregation, and that you would move us as believers in Christ to live beyond the walls of this church, that we would infect our neighborhoods and our schools and our businesses with the life-transforming absolute truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for your glory and for the good of others. And Lord, as we put money and connection cards in a basket here, I pray that you would use this to fuel your kingdom works in Collin County and beyond. And in all these things we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.